Records, WFMU East Orange, WMFU, Mount Hope, WFMU.org.
listening to WFMU. This is Jason Siegel here with you, and uh, we just heard music from SoCal Moon Goon Young, Bob Trimble with One Mile from Heaven, off a 7-inch release of that uh, put out by the Mexican summer label, These Hills of Gold from San Francisco with Free Association from a 7-inch on Happy Parts Recordings and El Jesus de Magico at the top of the set from the Columbus Discount Singles Club, uh, the song Unclean Ghost. And very pleased to be joined by Sam Berlowski, um, recently co-authored this really fascinating study of the state of recorded sound preservation in the United States. It was uh, sponsored by and commissioned by uh, the Library of Congress back in 2000. Is that right? That's right. The National Recording Preservation Board, established in the year 2000, and Congress asked for this study. And uh, and I guess one one of the really interesting findings of this study, I mean, it, its subtitle is "A National Legacy at Risk in the Digital Age." And here, you know, what what we're all told is like, "Oh, careful what you put to post on Facebook and everything you put on the internet is going to be with you for the rest of your life." And what this study is actually telling us is that um, a lot of the sound produced, um, you know, in in the digital format in 2009 is actually less likely to survive than you know, wax cylinders from 1909. So I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to grapple with that idea. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Well, well, sure. I mean, there's a little bit of a paradox in that, as you pointed out, it's possible that materials that are 100 years old have a better chance of surviving than materials produced yesterday. Um, part of the reason is, is that it's so easy to create recorded sound now. We have so many different media on which to create it. And it's not that the, the you know, they're inherently at risk, although I, maybe they are. It's just that they need active attention to assure that they're preserved. There is no permanent digital medium. So Facebook is something that, I mean, it's interesting you should point that out, that these things stay with you forever. Because Facebook is backed up by an enormous network of servers in which anything posted to Facebook probably gets immediately backed up into a mirror server at another site, and, and there's a, a very you know, large investment in infrastructure behind it. And we need such a thing behind digital sound or any kind of what we call born digital content. It could be video as well. We need to assure that there are someone backing these things up regularly and, and looking at the media and making sure that the integrity of the, of the bits on the, on the medium is right. And, you know, uh, hmm. like, like I say, c- copying it to something else regularly. So, so there's this idea that, you know, a, an archive in the past, think back to uh, archives before the digital age, they had these physical objects and their, their duty was to look after them and make sure that nobody, you know, got them too dirty or, or basically keep them in a locked box kind of and protect them. And that, that was what preservation meant uh, before the digital era. And now it seems like uh, a, a big theme of this study is that preservation and access and uh, when, when people have access to content, it's kind, of, it's kind of flipped around. It's like the job of an archivist is no longer to, to preserve things by keeping them in this... Uh, locked up library but but if we can actually put things online and and make copies and share between libraries then that adds adds value and actually helps preserve recordings is that yeah, I I do think that's true um I don't think there's any archivist who likes keeping things locked up or hmm. I'll I'll rephrase that and say any good archivist <laughs> no, no good archivist wants to keep things locked up and get some sort of personal satisfaction over that um and and 25 years ago, uh, recorded sound preservation, what, what was thought to be best, the best practice, and it was at the time, was to copy things to open reel tape, quarter-inch tape, big 10-inch reels, and then have them in a temperature and humidity-controlled vault with some security. And that was the best we could do. No one expected ready access to it because this was an analog medium in which you had to copy it to something else in usually, maybe not in real time, maybe you could have a high-speed duplicator, but there was no instantaneous network like there is now. Nowadays, with, with digitally created sound and, and where preservation copies are digital files instead of analog copies, there's an expectation of access. 
Mm-hmm. And there just is, because we can access so much on on our machines now through the Internet. And, um, and archivists are always looking for opportunities to provide access, in part because they're looking for preservation funding, and the preservation funding is competing with other media for which they can provide access, say it's books or maps or photographs. There's some incredible photograph collections on the web that you could just go to and download for free. Major research libraries, Library of Congress, foremost yeah. among them. Yeah, I'm thinking of, of the Flickr Commons, which is... And, in- the, and, and the Library of Congress then increased access by... I mean, they were always there, and then to sort of look at new ways for scholarship and comments, uh, they put them on Flickr. Now, now you uh, were the uh, executive director of the of the NRPB? The no, I've been a consultant to the NRPB. I was head of the recorded sound section the at the Library of Congress okay. for about nine years until 2005. And I was asked to help with a study. The other author, um, you know, it was a, we were co-authors, equal work done by Rob Bamberger, mm-hmm. who is a, a policy analyst and also a, a radio host. Of, on, on WAMU in Washington, a yeah. fine jazz scholar. Yeah, I, I, I saw that. I, I got to tune into his program sometime. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so so what, I mean, you, at, what the Library of Congress has this thing, the Flickr Commons that we mentioned, which mm-hmm. is uh, basically putting images into the commons on, on Flickr and, and people are then able to tag them and add metadata and, and kind of point out, oh, well, this, you know, this is a, uh, Military uniform from this era, um, you know, that that sort of thing. Yeah, and, that's and my grandmother's house, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, so so what is standing in the way, maybe of of the same thing happening for the Library of Congress, uh, you know, the, the the recorded sound archives? Well, um, the greatest obstacle, in, in in our opinion, to to you know putting a lot online is copyright law for sound recordings. Sound recordings have a, a unique uh, position in the copyright realm, and that is until 1972, there was no federal copyright law for sound recordings. But instead, there are state laws in, in almost every state that protect sound recordings. Mm-hmm. And when sound recordings, so they're basically anti-piracy laws, when sound recordings were given federal protection in 1972 or when that law was revised in 76, it said that no federal law shall supersede state law until 2067. That's what the law is now, 95 years from 1972. And so that means that whereas there are, as I mentioned before, maps and books and photographs and motion pictures that from 1922 up through 1922, which are in the public domain, there are virtually no American sound recordings that are in the public domain. They had no protection until 72, but once they got protection, now even an 1895 cylinder is protected by state and common laws till 2067. These these laws are they're different in every state and they're kind of impossible to yeah, the untangle, states, right? They, they were anti-piracy laws that, that states passed because there was no, they, they were, you know, basically asked to pass because there were no federal anti-piracy laws for sound recordings and that you know such laws that copyright would give you and um the state laws don't have a term a copyright term they don't expire at a given time so when the, when the federal law was revised in 76 they said the state laws will um expire in 2047 and then when the sunny bono copyright extension act was passed which was about Mm-hmm. 1998 that 2047 moved to 2067 wow so that's yeah that's it's uh it's really just just ridiculous and part of the so so part of the goal of this study was actually to to come up with some recommendations right yeah. going forward and um you had well, some part of the, yeah the goal was to look at the impact of of, of these things there aren't that many so, recommendations we we pass on other people's recommendations right. we see specific needs um, one was just even to look and see what the accessibility of historical recordings is in terms of imprint. And we commissioned a study from a statistician and recording historian, uh, Tim Brooks, who found that 
of pre-1965 recordings of historical interest, 14% are in print by their rights holders, which means 86% are still protected by copyright and state laws, but they're not accessible to the public, meaning in print. Now, fortunately, um, without sounding like I'm pandering, you know, things like WFMU or Rob Bamberger's Hot Jazz Saturday Night Radio is providing incredible access to historical recordings by you know, shows that are on your station, on Rob's weekly program. We, we're able to access historical recordings, you know, but it's only through radio broadcasts when the radio broadcasts are, are done and you know, we can't select exactly what we can hear. Well, uh, what is uh, are are you finding that I, I one one of the points in the study was was that if copyright law was followed to a T, uh, basically no sound archiving would take place. And are you finding that that sound archivists are adhering to copyright law or or kind of ignorant or? No, they're. I think no. I mean, I don't know whether they're they're ignorant of it. I mean, basically, it's true. The copyright law is written for the printed word for the most part, with a few exceptions, although there are you know, big exceptions where they actually forbid things because they're music or recorded sound. And the law says you can't, a library can't preserve something unless the item is actually already deteriorating, already showing signs of deterioration. Now, you know, that sort of makes sense for a brittle book. You're not going to microfilm a brittle page until it's actually getting brittle. But you'd hate to see a sound recording not get copied until it's actually scratched or deteriorated. But the fact is, is that archives are copying, doing some preservation without meeting that criterion. And and no record company is suing a library, has ever sued a library. Yeah, that was because, another another question is, is yeah. are, are these, you know, state state common, like, anti-piracy laws that never expire, has anyone actually acted on them and gone after you know, a non-profit library or archive. They, they certainly have never acted against a non-profit archive for no. for preserving a recording. And actually, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the kind of testimonies included in the study are from people from the music industry or or even copyright attorneys saying, you know, we all benefit from access. Um, well, I, I think we do. I mean, I think that by um, providing access, we build markets for older recordings. And, you know, a lot of archivists believe, and, and people who collect recorded sound, it isn't, the difficulty isn't entirely materials are still protected by copyright, it's that the protected materials are locked up and inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Recordings aren't that expensive, you know, $15 for a CD is actually a good deal compared to what 78s cost in 1920 and 30 and 40. They were very expensive, and, you know, when you adjust for inflation... But they're just not accessible at all. So no, no one, no libraries that I'm aware of have been prosecuted or threatened with prosecution. But the libraries aren't making these things accessible on the web or otherwise. And if they are making them accessible, they're taking a risk in doing so. You know, some of them have done so. Their attorneys have said this is an acceptable risk. Let's do it. Yeah, the, the, there are some sound recordings that the Library of Congress makes available, right? Well, that's right. The, sound, the Library of Congress has placed materials from the American Folklife Center, which was which has custody of the Archive of Folk Culture. There are materials there online. The library has put um, Edison recordings. Um, it's interesting that the actual disposition of the, of the recordings made by the Thomas Edison companies are very vague. No one knows exactly whether they're in the public domain or whether they're owned by a company that Edison sold assets to, Edison's family sold assets to. And people have accepted and said, well, we don't know if they're public domain, but we think this is an acceptable risk, meaning no one's come out and said, yes, I own them. So the library has put some online, and, and uh, other institutions have as well. Yeah, the, the um, UCSB cylinder. I work for the University of California, Santa Barbara. That's oh. my real job. I, I edit a discography of Victor Recordings, and our office has put 8,000 cylinders online at you, uh, you and uh, and Dave, David Soybert, right? Ex- absolutely right. Do, doing really, really great, important work there, making these, uh, making these unbelievable recordings. Unbelievable work to, to make these things publicly accessible. Yeah. Um. And, and we're working now, I mean, this Victor project, with the Library of Congress 
to put Victor and Columbia recordings, other sound recordings being 78s primarily, that are owned by Sony Music Entertainment, they're the rights holders, we're going to put those online where actually the Library of Congress is, and we're collaborating with them. The Library of Congress obtained a non-exclusive license from Sony to put acoustical recordings, pre-1925 recordings online. It'll be called the National Jukebox website, and it ought to be up around the first of the year. It's going to have at least 10,000 recordings. That's, that's very exciting. So that, that's going to be streaming only? It's streaming only. That's the only license that, that the library could obtain. And downloading, that, what they did not want downloading. Well, there, there's a lot of research that says the more something is made available for streaming, I've heard this from like, uh, you know, people who, who work in the digital music industry, uh-huh. the more something is made ava- available for streaming, the more people are going to purchase downloads or physical copies, well, whatever I, it might be. So maybe that's I mean, part I of what Sony is... Uh, that's Sony's hope, I'm sure. Yeah. That's Sony's hope. And, and I mean, it's, it's my hope because I'm an archivist for, with, with a specialty in these older recordings. And, um, you know, I'm not just doing this for myself. I hope. You know, I mean, I hope that we're, we're building interest in a research interest and, and leisure interest in, in this, you know, sound heritage. Well, it's, it's a really fascinating study, and uh, I think has interesting... Well, you know, thank you. It's, it's, and you might tell your listeners it's, um, you know, it's available as a free download from clear.org, the Council on Library and Information Resources. Yeah, we will we'll have a link in the playlist. You can download it uh, straight from the site, and uh, a lot of interesting uh, you know, news articles about it, uh, just picking up on various strands of... You know, this idea that copyright is just standing in the way of archiving. Well, that, that's one thing. The news things have emphasized certain things. They've got a lot of publicity over the, the, the lifespan of a CD-ROM, right. which is a little exaggerated. That, I may have misstated it or it may have been misquoted, but you know, CD-ROMs don't last. They last longer than three to five years, perhaps, we hope, but they really do need to be copied. If you have treasured photographs or sound on CD-ROMs, you know, ones that you made in your computer they really should be copied periodically yeah, what, what it's it almost seems like the music industry at the time was fearful of of cdrs and the ability no, they're still to fearful of and, them. and it's almost like they put a hex on them well don't, i don't, don't i don't you know i don't think there's a conspiracy to make them <laughs> unstable but um i mean there's great fear if um people my age remember when uh, the music industry was was incredibly fearful of cassette machines that right. could record home recording was, is or home taping is killing the music industry. Yeah, and uh, you know now they probably look on that as the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I love this idea that's that's uh, you know a big part of of this uh, study that that preservation and access can go hand in hand. And there's a lot of allusions to the idea that that uh, a viable you know that copyright is an issue that that uh, the music industry is grappling with, and so is uh, so so is the general public, and so. Our uh, our archivists and maybe the solution to preservation and access and uh, a viable industry can all go hand in hand. So with this new project that you're working on, um, coming and, and and what is the name of of the the Victor? Uh, it's a, the jukebox. The Victor. Well, the, my Victor. We have a Victor discography at UCSB that people can just sort of type Victor discography UCSB to see the data, and it's going to feed you know cataloging for the jukebox in addition to UCSB record collections. And it's called the National Jukebox. Um, it's not up yet, but it'll be up at the end of the year. I don't know what the exact uh, URL will be, but um, hopefully it's going to be well enough known that you can uh, search National Jukebox and Google and other search engines. Well, it's very exciting. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sam Berlowski for joining joining us here on WFMU this morning and uh and anything else that you that you want to add or um I'm a WFMU listener. Oh, thanks so I much. I mean there's, there's it's a wonderful era we live in where we have so much radio accessible to us through podcasts and downloads and your station's one of my favorites. Oh, well thank you. Well you you are doing great work. We are, we I think we're we're fans of of each other's work. So That's Great, thanks. Um thanks again for joining us this morning. Sure thing. I will, I will catch up with you uh a little bit later this afternoon, I do want to get into a little bit more music here. We're in the midst of this, you know, it's funny, we're talking about digital music and uh, 
digital music and analog music. And here we're in the midst of a week where WFMU DJs are spinning almost exclusively 7-inch records in our celebration of this this, uh, vinyl format leading up to the WFMU Record Fair. The WFMU Record Fair this weekend, Friday, October 22nd through Sunday, the 24th at the Metropolitan Pavilion in Manhattan. It's 125 West 18th Street. We've got live music from Prince Rama, The Hamburglers, Ted Leo, Tom Carter, Dan Friel of Parts and Labor, a lot of great screenings in the AV Lounge, live broadcasts from the record fair where DJs like Mr. Fine Wine, Michael Shelley, Chris T., Rex, Gaylord Fields, and Terry T. are all going to be spinning 7-inch records and uh, record fair finds. More info is online at wfmu.org, and I will see you there at the fair, or maybe you'll tune in. And let's get back into some more of these 7 inches that we've been talking so much about. I do want to say in the background, let's see, Glenny417 is what we're listening to right now with Biscope Garden Nightlife. We heard from Lee Rossevere with Back Time and Stormbox and the Sixth Sense Future Music Instrumental. These, of course, are not 7 inches. They're actually free Creative Commons music from the Free Music Archive because I'm going to turn this section of my show into a podcast. And the next section is also going to be included in the podcast because these are 7 inches physical objects you can also download for free from freemusicarchive.org. So let's get into it now with the Debo Band here on WFMU. Thank you. 
da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
LG Laurent, our friend from uh, from France with Armel, title track to the Armel 7-inch on Le Villain Chen, heard from the Lemon Dots with Sunrise Surprise. Off of the Girl in Motion 7-inch on the Labor of Love label. Black Math from Chicago, great band with the cello walking at night from their lost space labels seven inch release measles mumps rubella going back to 1993 on the maladies label which i'm not actually sure is that the same thing as maladies this is a band featured chuck bettis robert austin mark rapelowski and Ryan M. Hicks began in 2001. Sadly, I think they've, uh, well, they, they had an album a couple years back. Maybe a few years back at this point. Hopefully they will continue playing music reform in the near future and at the top of the set. The Debo Band and kitted Debo band Ethiopian Ethiopiques influenced uh, CSC funk band offshoot and this is on the electric cowbell label run by a member of the CSC funk band 
All right, now what you just heard was an excerpted live radio broadcast from my radio program. It airs Thursday mornings on WFMU 91.1 FM out of Jersey City, New Jersey. And uh, this is the podcast version. It's called Gray Area, featuring Creative Commons music from freemusicarchive.org. You can check out the playlist to this and other podcasts, find out more about the artists and uh, the Creative Commons licenses that allow you to also include this music in uh, different kinds of creative works over at wfmu.org slash playlists slash GA. A lot of, well, actually all the music that we heard, you can download for free. You can also find on the 7-inch format. This was part of WFMU's Singles Going Steady Week, where we played exclusively 7-inch records. And thank you very much to Sam Berlowski for calling in to talk about the state of recorded sound preservation in the United States, a new study that you can download from clir.org. That's the Council on Library and Information Resources, clir.org. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. We'll